Hello and welcome to the Risen Jesus Podcast with Dr. Mike Lacona. Dr. Lacona is Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University, and he is President of Risen Jesus, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. My name is Kurt Jarris, your host. Well, he was blinded by the light, and last week we didn't really get to talk too much about that experience from Acts, as it's recounted, uh, but uh, we'll be looking, uh, we'll be continuing to look at Paul and the experience that he had on the Damascus Road and his uh, interpretation, his beliefs about that experience, and guiding us through uh, the the data set that we have as we explore the historical bedrock, uh, as we look at uh, the facts about Jesus, is our expert of the program, Dr. Mike Lacona. Mike, good to see you again today. Hey, thanks. This is good to see you, too. It's a good, fun topic to discuss. Yeah, you know, uh, on the last episode, uh, we just began working our way through, uh, looking at a number of phrases that Paul used to describe the experience. Uh, particularly, we looked at that word appearance. And, uh, you know, we didn't even get to the book of Acts, which is where uh, Luke recounts, I think it's in three different spots, uh, Paul's a conversion experience. And the, the scholars, as you know, are debating over what exactly that experience was like. And as you mentioned, it was different than what the, the 12 experienced in the Gospels. So why don't you start by guiding us through the, the three different uh, narrative accounts in Acts about that experience. Sure. Well, you're right. There are three different accounts. Uh, they're in Acts chapter not, chapters 9, 22, and 26. The gist of what happens is Paul is on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. And he and his traveling companions, as they're on their way, all of a sudden they're interrupted by a bright light, a a light that um, Paul says in the book of Acts was shining brighter than midday. And it causes him to fall down to the ground. And he hears a voice out of heaven that says, Paul or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul answers, well, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now go, get up, and I will show you the things that you must suffer for my namesake. And in another one, you know, he's not trying to be, Luke is not trying to be exhaustive in reporting every word that was said there. Because later on, in another uh, rendition of that account, he adds that God was sending him to speak to the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles. Now, um, so that's uh, the gist of what's narrated in the book of Acts um, about Paul's conversion experience. And why that's interesting is because, again, this would seem to be reflecting more of a heavenly vision outside of space-time rather than the kind of uh, experience that we read about in the Gospels. Mm. Now, there are, uh, in these accounts, though, there's... Yes, there is something different, but there's also a physical aspect of it too. So it doesn't seem like it can merely be a spiritual vision, uh, like Peter's dream to, uh, uh, you know, uh, go send the gospel to the Gentiles uh, there with Cornelius in in Acts ten. Um, there's something more to it. There is a, I'm not sure exactly how you do describe it, a transphysical uh, interaction. Uh, that's happening here. And the experience doesn't just affect Paul, right? It's not just Paul by his lonesome self. The experience also affects the people he's with, doesn't it? That's correct. And yeah, that term you use, transphysical, I believe that's the term N.T. Wright uses 
for it. I think it's a decent term. Um, it, it's hard, you know, uh, scholars, you know, debate, even uh, Christians and, and evangelicals debate over the, even if you think the, the body of Jesus, the resurrection body, uh, had continuity with the, the body that's buried, as, as, as most do, um, you know, was it the same? They, they had arguments like, well, is, is it the same atoms and, and so forth? So it, it's hard. You know, you're looking at someone who can appear and disappear at will if the Gospels are correct. So how do you describe that? I think transphysical is a decent uh, term for it. Um, and, and you're right. It's uh, there is some some physical aspects to this because, like you said, um, there are traveling companions and. You know, they hear the voice and they see the light. Um, and I think it's important to note here that although scholars debate over who wrote the book of Acts, they are in agreement that whoever wrote Acts also wrote the Gospel of Luke, like Acts is part two. It's the sequel. And so um, now, according to Craig Keener, in his massive <laughs> four-volume commentary on Acts. I mean, the introductory, the prolegomena uh, content is, I think, 624 pages of small font. I mean, this guy's really looked at stuff. You know Keener, he's just a machine, when it, an encyclopedia when it comes to this stuff. He says the majority of scholars, although they don't name Luke, they do think that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. So there's only a limited number of people, and, and, and Keener does think that it's Luke, and a lot of other scholars think that it was Luke. So, but regardless of that, uh, of who the author was, it's the same author who wrote the gospel as who wrote Acts. And the, the, the gospel have Jesus uh, resurrecting bodily, leaving behind an empty tomb and appearing to his disciples in a manner that he eats. He eats food that they had cooked. So, I mean, it's a, uh, and he says um, that a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. You know, it's a physical kind of appearance that they can touch as well. Um, but when it comes to Paul's experience in the book of Acts, it's different. And the reason it's different is because it's a post-ascension appearance of Jesus to Paul. Jesus is in, in his glorified state at that point. So it's going, the nature of it shouldn't surprise us if it's different. Right, right. So there's... Some physical aspect, again, the companions, they hear the voice, but if I recall correctly, um, maybe from Acts 9, they don't understand it, maybe, um, whereas Paul can hear and understand, and then also they do see the light, uh, but if I also recall correctly, they're not blinded like Paul is. Right, so there are some differences there, and some like to to point out and, and see contradictions there, because uh, in one it says uh, one instance it says that um the the uh, the traveling companions heard the voice and another it says they did not hear the voice um but the same greek word akuo is is used there but that can mean different things uh, you know just as in english greek words carried a variety of meanings and uh, luke if i remember right he uses this something like 57 yeah 57 times to mean listening with an intent to understand so it could certainly mean, I think what we're most likely seeing here is in one account, Luke is saying that the traveling companions heard the voice. 
And then in the other one where it says that they did not hear the voice, it probably has that connotation of understanding behind it. So it's like they heard the voice, they saw the light, but they did not hear the voice. They saw the light, but they did not understand the voice. I, I think is what's going on there. And, I, you know, if we're talking about different authors, well, then you could say perhaps you could still reconcile it. But um, through the different meanings of akuo, the Greek word hear or understand. If you're talking about the same author, but, but like one's in Acts and the other's in the Gospel of Luke, you could still do the same thing. But we're talking about the same author in the same book. Yeah. It just seems uncharitable to demand that there's a contradiction here. It just seems more likely that he's using a variety of meanings here. Yeah, and even in English, we have this semantic range where, hey, did you hear the bird? Hey, are you hearing me? Yeah. You know, are, are you hearing me to understand what I'm saying? I so, hear you. Yeah, we've, we've got the same semantic range that exists in English as it did in, in Greek. So you're right. We should just be charitable here a good and, point. and uh, expect that there's no, there's no contradiction with the very author in the very same book. Uh, so no, no problem there. Okay, uh, so is there anything more that needs to be said here about Acts and the, the different narratives of the conversion experience? Yeah, another difference that's often pointed out is that in one says the traveling companions fell down to the ground and uh, with Paul, and the other says the traveling companions stood there. And um, I don't see this as a problem uh, either, because the Greek word, it is in English, but the Greek that's used there is what's important, and it's the word histemi. And histemi carries the meaning, it can mean standing, like literally standing, but it often means remaining in, in, a, in a stable position. You're just in the same position, a fixed position. Or it could even mean you're present um, or you've just stopped. Histemi. Um, a good example of this is in Luke chapter 7 where you have a sinful woman who comes in and Luke says that she stood behind Jesus. Histemi. She stood behind Jesus and she wet his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair. And then she kissed and anointed his feet. It's hard to do if you're standing up, Mike. Standing behind him. That's, that's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. But if it meant, if the term is being used there in a sense that she remained in a steady position behind Jesus, we should imagine that, that Jesus is reclining, as would have been the case at a dinner. He would have been reclining, and she would have been at his feet, behind him, at his feet, doing these uh, honorable deeds to him, these deeds to honor him, and in sorrow and repentance, um, and, and begging him to, to help her. So, um, yeah, otherwise, like you said, it's going to be really, you're going to have to be really flexible and being able to contort yourself in a lot and of And have really ways. long hair, too. Really long hair. <laughs> really long hair, yeah. Um, so, it's more likely that when Paul's, uh, Luke is in Acts referring on one occasion, they fell to the ground and the other, they, they were standing there. He's meaning that they were stopped there with Paul and they were, you know, it's not talking about, in that case, it's not talking about the position they're in. And I don't see this at all as a stretch or a strain uh, of the text. I mean, this is 
were within the normal use of the meaning of the of that Greek term. So we, we have to make sure that we are reading these texts and giving them their their proper due in the original language and what that meant. And sometimes that's just not so. I think the the English translation standing is probably not the best one there. Um, but what word would you use in, instead? You know, sometimes there's just no direct perfect translation of another from Greek to English. Yeah, interesting. All right, uh, so why don't we transition and, and talk about now Paul's uh, beliefs about the nature of the resurrection. So we, we've we've gone through now what he said about um, the appearances and his other terms that he's used for, you know, to appear. Uh, and uh, then we've got Luke, uh, at least what I think is Luke, describing the, the conversion experiences. But what's the data set on Paul's beliefs about the uh, appearance and the uh, Damascus Road experience? Yeah, good question. So we've looked at some ambiguous text, vague text. Now we're going to look at some that, that, uh, that yield some insights into what Paul, how he viewed resurrection, the nature of resurrection. So the first text we can uh, examine is Romans chapter 8, verse 11, and it reads, Now if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Jesus from the dead will give life also to your mortal bodies through the dwelling of his spirit in you. Now, when you take this in total context, you know, just uh, even with the verses that follow, it, it talks about how all creation is groaning out for its redemption when Jesus returns. And in verse 30, 23, it talks about the redemption of our bodies when Jesus returns. So he's going to give life also to our mortal bodies, the redemption of our body at the general resurrection when he returns. So he's going to give life to our mortal bodies. Resurrection, our resurrection is going to be a transformation of our mortal body. And here he says, the one who raised Jesus from the dead will give life also to your mortal body. So if our mortal bodies are going to be resurrected, it all, it's because Jesus' mortal body was resurrected. So this verse, um, I, to me, it suggests that Jesus' resurrection by implication, Jesus' resurrection was something that occurred to his mortal body, to his corpse. Yeah, good. So that's one simple verse, but it seems like there's a whole lot more, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Um, and perhaps one of the most interesting, this is probably the most interesting and most discussed text, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 54, when it comes to the nature. Because here Paul Remember, in that oral tradition, verses 3 through 8, Paul doesn't really talk too much, doesn't really give us much about the nature. If anything, he's saying what goes down in burial comes up in resurrection. So it's a, it's a physical resurrection. Although, you know, we can't, it, that only has so much weight to it. It's, it's not that secure, but maybe weakly implied. But here he's going to talk about resurrection and he's going to do so in a way similar to how he does in Romans 8.11. It's not going to, he's not going to talk about Jesus' resurrection directly, um, but the nature of it. But he's going to talk about it, the nature of Jesus' resurrection indirectly. Again, it's going to kind of be the way 
instead of saying the way Jesus was, well, he does say at one point the way Jesus was raised is the way we're going to be raised. Um, like verse 20, he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. He's the first to be raised from the dead in a resurrection body. Three verses later, verse 23, he talks about us being raised. He says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who belong to Christ at his coming. So the rest of the general resurrection, the re part two of it is going to occur when Jesus returns. That's when we will be raised. Then Paul goes on to describe how we will be raised. So since in verse 20, he's the first fruits and the, we're going to be raised like him at his coming, then if he's going to say it's like the manner in which we're going to be raised, it's crystal clear that Paul thinks that that is the way Jesus was raised. So now let's look at what Paul says about the way we're going to be raised. He says um, he's going to answer two questions in this uh, context. It's like, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? And so he's going to tackle the second question first. And he said, what kind of body? Well, he's going to give a seed analogy. And he says the seed that's buried is not the same kind of thing that is raised from the dead. The seed is going to split and, you know, it's, it, it's going to change. So then he, he says the body that is buried, the, the, what is sown, it is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. In other words, our body, when it's buried, it decays. It's, it's sown in corruption. It will corrupt. It will decay, decompose. But it's raised in incorruption undecayable. Um, it is sown in dishonor. You, you don't want to touch a corpse, right? It will make you unclean, according to Jewish law. It is raised, though, in glory. It is sown in weakness with all of the mortal fleshly weaknesses that cancer and heart attacks and, and back pain and whatever, all these weaknesses, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, it's this last comparison that has brought about legions of, of academic publications. What does Paul mean by this? And there are various opinions. And you look at different English translations and they say something different. Some scholars like to say that when it's talking about sown a natural, raised a spiritual it's a better translation to say it is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. So if it's raised, sown, a, buried as a physical material body, it will be raised as a spiritual immaterial body. And this is reflected in some English translations like the New Revised Standard Version, the Common English Bible, um, the Amplified Bible. I think the New Jerusalem Bible. There are a few of them that, that have this translation. So in my research, what I did was um, I looked, you got to look at what these two terms mean. And the term here, most translations have natural, not physical, but it still could mean physical. You, I guess you could say in a physical sense, it's sown in natural bodies, raised a spiritual body. If spiritual means immaterial. Um, the, the Greek word that's used there translated uh, natural is psuchikos from the root Suche, meaning soul, life. It's where we get the study of life or the soul, psychology, suke and lagos. 
So you got sukhakas. It's soulish. Um, and it, it means a number of different things um, in the ancient literature. It's used several times in the New Testament, I think six times. And it it's always in the sense in a negative sense. In fact, James, in the letter of James, he talks about how I think it's the wisdom of this world. He is um, earthly, suchikas, and demonic. All right. So this the, whatever suche means here, it's it's not in a good sense. Okay. When I when we look through the ancient literature, and I had an assistant help me with this. Um, we back all the way up to the 8th century BC. That's as far back as you can look in, in the ancient Greek literature. All And then you have to stop somewhere. So we went to the 3rd century AD. Okay, so that's 11 centuries. And we found 846 occurrences of the term psuchikas. Not just suche, but psuchikas. And you want to know how many times it means physical or implies physical? Zero. It never means that. So to use that kind of a um, uh, contrast, physical versus non-physical, material versus immaterial, is no longer sustainable. It is not a good translation. That's not what Paul's saying. Now, what is he saying? We'll get to that in just a moment. The other term is pneumatikos, which is the Greek term for spiritual, which has the root pneuma, spirit. Um but what does that mean? Well, we looked in the same time frame, 8th century BC through the 3rd century, there are 1131 occurrences of the term. As far as I know, no one else has done a word study to this extent with it. So this was groundbreaking in our 2010 book, The Resurrection of Jesus. Um, so 1131 occurrences. Now it does have various meanings. It can mean immaterial, ethereal, like, uh, you know, you you could put your hand through it like a ghost or something, okay? But it also means other things like Chrysippus, and I think the third century BC uses it in a sense when he's describing the Stoics as spiritual persons. Like I could say, you know, Kurt, uh, Doctor Jarus is a spiritual person. He's got his mindset on spiritual things. That's his that that is his priority in life. Okay. Now, what does Paul mean by here? Well, we've got a really good idea when we go just a few chapters earlier in the same letter, because Paul uses the same two terms, psuchikos and pneumatikos. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, let me, let me read those to you. Um, he says, but the natural man, psuchikos, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually pneumatikos, spiritually examined, spiritually discerned. So it's kind of like think about it this way. Um, I, I remember there uh, when I lived in Virginia Beach, I, I saw an African American um, wearing a T-shirt that said, uh, "I forgot was on what was on the front." But on the back, it said, you wouldn't understand. It's a black thing. And um, so I think you could you could say with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we can imagine Paul passing out T-shirts in to the Christians at the church at Corinth. And on the front, it says the wisdom of God. 
and on the back it says, you wouldn't understand, it's a spiritual thing. That's what Paul is doing here. He's contrasting the natural man who can't really even understand the things of the Spirit. And that's why I think this becomes apparent sometimes when we look in our political process today and we say, why is it that so many people just don't get the Christian thing? And, and they take these views that are so contrary to biblical teaching. They just can't understand because it's a spiritual thing. That's what Paul's saying. So it has nothing to do with substance. And I think what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, when he says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. He's not talking about the substance. He is talking about the mode. So our body is buried. It's sown as a natural body that's animated by uh, heart, lungs, kidneys, etc. But it's going to be raised a spiritually a spiritual body. It's empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what is going on here. So again, it has nothing to do with the, the substance of our bodies. Now, Paul hasn't given us anything here naturally on uh, yet on what it means. It's not like Romans 8, 11. Um, but he, he is saying here, he, he hasn't given us what our bodies are going to look like at this sense, or whether it's physical or spiritual. All I'm saying is this text does not support the view that it is an immaterial body. Um, yeah. So then there's another thing here. Um, in verse 45, it says, the first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Ooh, so what's what's happening here? So we have two things, two contrasts that are going on between Adam and Jesus. The one, it's living versus life-giving. And there we got the same word that we found in Romans 8.11, zoiopoia'o life-making, life-giving, okay? And it's a, a living versus life-giving. And the other one is soul versus spirit. He's a, a, a you got suche versus pneuma, the same roots as suchikas and pneumatikas. And so this is really difficult to translate in a... Um, in English in, in a way that is really polished and fluid. Uh, but a rough translation um, I would give it would be this. Adam became a natural entity that's living, whereas Jesus became a spiritual entity that's life-giving. And natural again, we see what Paul meant by that versus spiritual. Um, let's just look at one more thing that I think is important in this text because it is appealed to so often. And that is verse 50, where Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is important. Some take that to say, see, he couldn't have been more clear. Flesh and blood, flesh and blood, our bodies, physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not going to be this corpse. It's going to be a spiritual body, something we get that has no continuity with our present body. But that misses the fact that flesh and blood is almost certainly a figure of speech. It's a linguistic idiom, probably a Semitism, 
and we have these kind of things in our language like you know that guy is green with envy we don't really mean to say he's the color green he's a red-blooded male well does that mean there's a different color blood that he has or what about um he's he's hot-headed or a cold-blooded murderer. You know, the temperature of the guy's blood is no different. The temperature of his head is no different. These are linguistic idioms we have in English. Well, flesh and blood appears to be one in Greek. Again, probably a Semitism. Um, we find it, let, uh, sometimes it's used uh, in a sense of, um, you know, physicality. But in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's not typically used in that way. Let me give you just two examples. We, we looked at Galatians 1.16 earlier, and there it says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. It's referring to humanity there. Humans, mortals. Yeah, not certainly. Basically certainly just not saying physical. Right. Paul's not consulting with flesh and blood by speaking to meat and uh, a bowl of blood. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, the other, another occurrence is in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 15 through 17. And there um, Jesus says, well, you know, who are people saying that I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah. Some say you are the Messiah, etc." Well, and then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It's contrasting not physical with immaterial, material versus immaterial. It's contrasting divine with mortals, humans there. Flesh and blood is just referring to someone who's human. That's that's all it is. So there is nothing in this text in 1 Corinthians 15 that is suggesting that the resurrection, our resurrection, and by implication Jesus' resurrection, is one that's immaterial and has no continuity with um, our, our present bodies. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for helping us get through some of those difficult passages where it may appear that Paul is talking about some spiritual resurrection and immaterial resurrection. It, certainly, the the evidence suggests that Paul means something else here. And on uh, our next episode, we're going to delve even deeper into these passages where Paul does talk about um, other verses that talk about the resurrection being a physical thing. There's so much to deal with with Paul here. He's such an important figure in uh, the case for the historical bedrock uh, for for Jesus and uh, uh, the resurrection. So thanks for guiding us through that, Mike. Well, if you'd like to learn more about the work and ministry of Dr. Mike Lacona, you can visit risenjesus.com where you can find authentic answers to genuine questions about the historical reliability of the Gospels and the resurrection of Jesus. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please consider supporting our work. Go to risenjesus.com slash donate. This has been the Risen Jesus Podcast, a ministry of Dr. Mike Lacona. 